All right, going to start with a question. So how do we go about seeking ethical and moral change in society? That should feel like a pretty big question, a loaded question, a complex question, but very significant right now in our world, in our country. Not that that question is never insignificant, but it does feel in a way like Maybe never before there is a, an assault on some of the basic Judeo-Christian values and understanding of our world, of our, of our civilization, of our country that we are founded upon. Such as things like God created men and women. <laughs> That's no longer a, a, a tenet that is agreed upon. That God exists is not agreed upon, that... that, that there is even such a thing as men and women as a creation of God and not just an oppressive social construct. And to go with that, as you follow that logic, therefore, what is family? What is marriage? What is parenting? I mean, that's, those are some absolutely massive questions that are right now being put in front of us every single day and everything that we have known to be true as a country is being called into question. Everything that was given to us by our founders that has biblical foundations is being called into question. And that's, that, and that's just one I mean, small, I mean, in some senses, small section of, of the issues that we're facing in our world. There's always things that we're going to be facing, but we've got some real particular ones that are big like that. Or what do we do with some of the massive injustices that are going on in the world right now? I mean, we, you know that right now in this world there's more slaves than ever in human existence. And this modern-day slavery of, of human trafficking, that's like an appalling reality. What do we do about the ongoing racial divisions in our country and the racism that exists? Other injustices, the list could go on and on. So today we're going to turn to one of the smallest books in the Bible. I didn't have time to count. It might be the smallest book in the Bible for some incredible wisdom on two ways that we can seek societal and ethical change in our world. There's more than just these two, but it will be plenty to ponder for today. So I'm going to kind of share the thesis statement right up front before we get into God's Word, and then we'll, we'll see it. But I want to assert to you all today that from the book of Philemon, we're going to see that positive societal change and ethical change comes through the transformation of hearts and relational connections. God goes after transforming hearts. You want to see change in the world? God wants to change hearts. And through relational connections that people have, hearts are changed. And so we're going to get into the book of Philemon today. In fact, the whole book, you can, you know, give yourself a little... Sticker at the end. We studied an entire book of the Bible today at church. But before we get there, we're going to back up a little bit. If you're new, we have been going through what are often called the prison letters of Paul. Letters that Paul wrote from prison. 
Philippians and Colossians and now Philemon and Ephesians is coming up. And one of the incredible things we have seen while unjustly in prison is that the fruit flowing out of his life is joy and hope. Those are some of the primary fruits that he is displaying and encouraging others to have no matter the circumstances. No matter the circumstances, which is astounding. He's in prison, and he shares the secret to be able to have joy and hope in everything. He says, I consider all things rubbish compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so it's knowing Jesus, which no circumstance, no person, no situation can take away, ever. And so he is living that reality. But as he moves on, he's going on to other things as well, and we're in the book of Colossians, as we were last week, and we get into this section where he's giving the church some challenging application to how to live out this new self that's available in Christ, a new reality, a new ethic, if you will, a new way of life. And he lists all these incredible attributes of Christ in Colossians 12, 3, 12 to 17. Then he goes on to talk about how this will take effect in some of the household relationships that we have, those relationships that are most close to us. And we left off there last week, and we're going to pick up. And pick up in Colossians 3.22. And then we're going to connect it to Philemon, and I'll tell you why in a moment. So, Colossians 3.22. Bond servants, or a more literal translation, is slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, in, in one way, while it's, like Paul often does, an incredible perspective of faith in the midst of horrible circumstances, which he says in this moment, Knowing from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. So he's, you know, he talks to the, the bond servants, the slaves, and talks about living a life that's even in the midst of those circumstances focused on God. Knowing that God's got your inheritance coming. So there's even this new way to live in that horrible situation with a new ethic. You can put on a new self that focuses on the reality of this this coming treasure of inheritance that everything in, your, everything in heaven is yours in Christ and it's coming. And so live to please God and see him in everything as your ultimate master. Yet at the same time, I'll be very honest, like this is a, a rough text because with my 21st century Christian eyes, I want way more from Paul than this. I, I want a, a straight out, I mean, when masters and slaves are covered, I mean, come on, what, what do we want to hear? We want a bold declaration for the absolute abolition of the institution of slavery in all forms. And that for a Christian, it is absolutely incompatible to hold another human being as property that's made in the image of God. It doesn't work. So we want to hear that. That's what I want to hear in this text. 
So I want to hear a call for masters to live out a whole new ethic. That the kingdom of God should, in the kingdom of God, to live that out, to put on the new self, as Paul's been talking about, would be to set their slaves free and show a radical transformation to the world. That happens when you follow Jesus. But, but you don't see that here. So I was like, ah, what's, what's going on? So thankfully, there's more to the story. There is more to the story. So, what's the more? The more is there's actually a second letter written and delivered at the same exact time to the same exact people, to the church at Colossae. In fact, though this letter is delivered directly to the leaders of the church, it's a private letter to the leaders of the church and instructs those leaders how they should respond to a slave that ran away from them named Onesimus who happened to somehow end up in Rome with Paul. So, we're going to read the whole book of Philemon right now. And man, the, the, when you get into all the details of it and you see it, this is an incredibly fascinating human story. That's, we got to remember that when we're reading the Bible, these are not superheroes. These are real people that are learning to live out being followers of Jesus. They do not have it all together. So you see the, 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 the humanity in their lives. And so there's some incredible stuff. We'll put it all together. All right. Philemon, 25 verses. It's like a long Facebook rant. So you can handle it. Don't worry. It's a whole book of the Bible, but it's not that long. We'll read it in two minutes. So Paul says, or Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh 
and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive me as you would, excuse me, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you will do even more than I say. At the time, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, which if you remember back, he's the one who planted the Colossian church and then left and went to Rome to seek Paul's help on how to deal with some of the challenges that they were facing in Colossae. So Epaphras sends greetings to you, as so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, so there's the whole thing, and we're going to walk back through. There is some, whoa, some awesome stuff in here. That really, what, again, what we're going to see is that the positive ethical and societal changes come through transformed hearts and relational connections. We're going to see it just incredibly in here. The central point of the letter is Paul makes a very clear appeal. It's in all throughout where he says, I appeal to you, and what is it? Verse 15, that you might receive him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother in the flesh and in the Lord. So it's just don't, not over-spiritualizing this. Physically and spiritually, he's a brother now, no longer a slave. Now, for that day and age, that is truly an astounding request. The Roman law was that a runaway slave, that was an offense punishable by death. So for Paul, though, their apostolic leader, now remember the book, the book of Colossians happened because Epaphras, who was one of Paul's missionaries, one of his teammates that was sent out from Ephesus, Epaphras goes and plants a few churches in Hierapolis and Thermopolis or whatever the other name is, and, uh, and then right here in Colossae. And what it looks like, what we put together from the book of Colossians is that Epaphras kind of felt like, man, some of the stuff that's going on at, at Colossae is like above my, you know, my pay grade. I need help. So he goes to Rome and he asks for Paul, the apostolic leader over that whole area, to write a letter to help bring theological truth and correction in God's heart. And so Epaphras is with them. And so Paul, their apostolic leader, he calls the leaders now of the church, which we'll see, let's, let's look at it here for a second here, in verse 1 and 2, where it says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So that three people are named at the beginning of the letter, Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus. So it is most likely that that is a husband, wife, and son. And the church is in their house, which at the time, culturally, if a church was in your house, that you were the leaders of that church. So the kind of apostolic order goes that Paul is kind of the leader over the region. He raises up Epaphras to 
go plant churches. Epaphras plants the church, and he leaves the Colossian church in the care of Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, and the church of Colossae that is in their house. And that's very consistent with the book of Acts and how you see church planting happening. Most churches were, were if you go to the you know, Philippian church, it was the church in Lydia's house. Those are the kind of things. Priscilla and Aquila had a church in their house. Paul names Nympha and the church in her house. It, a church was basically what we might call like a life group, a house church. They didn't have big buildings. It was a group of people in a house. And so this is the address to the leaders of the church at Colossae. A private letter from the apostolic leader of this kind of whole movement of Christianity in the area where he is calling these leaders to a whole new way of life in the kingdom of God. Could this be, could this letter itself, where he is appealing to these slave owners to receive back a runaway slave that by Roman law was punishable by death, receive him back as a no longer slave, but a beloved brother in the Lord, could this be, in Paul's mind, some of that new self-application that Paul spends a ton of time in Colossians writing about? Put on the new self. Put on the new self. I'm going to tell you, when Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus read this, this is a new self. This is not a norm or a custom or anything they would be used to hearing in their time. So let's look at some of the, the details and dig in here. He prays for them in verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowing of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So like Paul normally does, before he gets into the meat of what he's going to say, it's very interesting, he prays for them about what he's about to say. Like he prays for revelation from God, essentially that the Holy Spirit would do in them what he's about to teach them and instruct them to do. So we're going to come back to that because this is incredibly significant. This translation of this prayer is a little hard to understand. We're going to come back because it's, it's amazing. So moving on here. In verses 7, he says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints that have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Knowing what his appeal is, which is receive back this runaway slave that supposedly has, uh, under Roman laws, punishable by death, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother in Christ. Knowing that that's coming, look what he says. Though I'm bold enough to command you to do what is required for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. That language is incredibly significant, knowing what Paul ultimately makes his appeal. 
Paul's perspective is, though as the spiritual father of sorts, as the apostolic leader over this whole area, over these churches, I could require you to do this because it's the right thing to do. But I want you to see that love requires you to do this. In a sense, he's calling, step up as a leader and do the right thing. That for love's sake, he's urging him to think through this new self. How many of you know that when you become a Christian, you are not magically now Jesus? Did that happen to anybody else? Or maybe I didn't quite pray the sinner's prayer right. I, I, I mean, you know, I know some of you, it's just, just so easy, and you literally became perfect. No, it doesn't work that way. And that's how we have to see the Bible. These are real people. Just because they're in the Bible and they're Christians does not mean they're perfect. What I see Paul doing is challenging him. Think through, Philemon, you've got a church in your house. What does it look like? What is love requiring you to do in this situation? you got to think it through because it's new to you. And your society is not going to give you the example that I want you to follow. So he's challenging him to think through what love requires. That is not happening in the ancient world. And he goes on to say, so in verse 9, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Obviously in that language, it's clear that a very deep and significant familial, relational bond of love has formed between Paul and and Onesimus. Paul calls him my child, my very heart. So somehow Onesimus, as a runaway slave, makes a very, very long journey from, I mean, it's on foot. It's not like you're you know, flying or anything like that. From modern-day Turkey to modern-day Italy. And so somehow on foot, you know, or maybe catching some rides here and there, and why, why does he even go there? Why, why, does, why does he want to seek out Paul? Because Paul is connected to the church that he, and the church and the people that he's run away from. So that, that, that's, a, that's a bad connection because that could put him right back in that situation. And he knows the Roman law. It's punishable by death. But somehow, I mean, this is the, hum, this is the humanity that I love, like thinking through what is going on in Onesimus's mind as he's run away, most likely stolen something of significant value or things of significant value, because that's what Paul addresses at the end, saying, if anything is wrong, you charge it to my account, I'm going to pay it back on his behalf. So most likely, scholars read into that and say, like, so he stole stuff and left, so he, he's in a bad way, and he decides, you know what, I, I've, I've got to get to Paul, and I heard he's in Rome in prison. So he makes this long trip goes there, whatever happens in that time, Paul says, he became my child. 
So obviously you're going you're gonna to see, if, if not already, Onesimus has received Christ. There's this beloved bond that has taken place relationally. And, and Paul says, he's my very heart. And he sends him back. That, that's a huge piece of relationship, the relational connections that bring about changes and changes of heart doesn't happen without these kind of connections. And in this little phrase, there's a nugget that is shocking to me. I never noticed it until the deeper study this time around, where he says, formally, he was useless to you. Formally, kind of before Christ, before sending him back to you. Formally, he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. So, formally, he was useless to you. That's a play on words, first of all. Because Onesimus, the word itself, the name, means useful, which is interesting. But that statement, again, try to put it in human real life. He just said to a slave owner about a formerly, meaning in the prior context that you knew Onesimus, in the prior situation, when he was your slave, Okay, that's what he's talking about. Formerly, go back to how it was before he ran away when he was your slave. He was useless to you. But now, as a beloved brother, he's far more useful. He's far more valuable. I mean, do we understand the dramatic implications of, of if, we li- if that's lived out? If every slave owner got the message that as a follower of Jesus, having slaves is useless to you compared to having the value of having them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I mean, is that not what he's saying? If that's taken seriously and lived out, the the institution implodes from within. It's a new set of eyes. Paul is calling this leader of the Colossian church to have. See him in his former way that is useless to you. I mean, that language, like that's, that's the whole, that's in, in, a, in a really harsh term, that's the whole institution of slavery is useful, like, like people treated as property, as tools for useful exploitation. And Paul uses one little word that it's, to me is like, Wow, Holy Spirit-inspired undermining of the whole system, saying, no, no, in Christ, you have to understand his former way, the former association that you had, is the whole, having him as a slave is useless compared to having him as a beloved brother. (laughs) Come on, Paul, there you go. That's what I was more looking for. Christianity is meant to be a movement of changed hearts that change hearts, that change hearts. It's meant to be a movement of transformed people, transforming people. That's what he's trying to get Philemon to see. He's 
trying to get Philema to step up into this moment as a leader and, and own, personally own the changes that he needs to make to step into this new self, this new life in Christ. Goes on in verse 13 to 14. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment, which in Paul's language, that's basically you're now recruited onto Paul's ministry team. If you're around and you're serving, that's, you, yeah, amen. You just got promoted. Now you're on Paul's mission and ministry team, and we'll come back to that. We're going to see it in a little bit, a little bit later. But I preferred to do nothing. This, this, is, this is almost funny. I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. You see, this is, a, this is like strategic, wise leadership. Again, it's a kind of a, a parallel of in his apostolic authority, I could require you to do this, but for love's sake, I want you to choose it. It's the same thing. He's saying, I, I, I want you of your own accord, not by compulsion, because it's the right thing to do. What's the implication? Because it is the right thing to do. But I want you to get it. I want you to see it. I want you to own it of your own accord. He goes on. Verse 15. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, man, this is, this is a really interesting leadership study of how Paul's navigating those waters. He's, he's speaking kind of like gently, but wow, is there some strong suggestion <laughs> Perhaps this is why he was parted you for, for a while. In other words, perhaps, Philemon, you have been given the opportunity in this to see things differently. That you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but as a brother. So again, Paul, Paul's just reinforcing he wants Philemon to step up to own it, to see that, man, there is an opportunity in here. Yeah, you weren't expecting it. It wasn't coming. You didn't really ask for it. Perhaps this is an opportunity. You know, it's like this is a good leader, almost like a good parent. You can't always just tell them what to do. As they grow up, you got to, perhaps, perhaps there's an, a learning moment in this. Oh, you got kicked out of school? Perhaps there's a learning moment. Instead of, you idiot, you know, they already know. Perhaps a learning moment is upon us. Paul's like, this is what he's doing, exactly. Saying, I could tell you what to do, but perhaps you need to see the opportunity that's in front of you. And then he goes on to really, really cash in his relational capital. And where you can see, though, relationships matter so much. Verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. <laughs> receive him. Now remember, the law says when he comes back, it can't be punishable by death. And what's Paul say? Receive him back as you would treat me. 
And he goes on. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. So that's where you, there's probably a theft involved. Paul's saying, pay it. I write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And this is, woo, he's laying it on thick right here. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even yourself. <laughs> do you see the, the level of relational capital that he's cashing in right now? I mean, this is big. I mean, this is either spiritual authority or manipulation or, or extortion. I'm not sure which one. I'm going to give Paul the benefit of the doubt. This is spiritual authority here. I mean, he, he, he is, he's saying, if you respect me at all as the apostolic leader who discipled Epaphras, who brought you the gospel, remember where you would be without the gospel. That all goes back ultimately to me and the ministry God's given me. In fact, so you owe yourself to me so in the same way you'd receive me, receive him. He's putting himself, his credibility, his authority on the line in the relational connections that he has to bring about these positive changes of heart, of ethics, and however else, however far it'll go. Verses 20, he just carries on. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. It's no, there's no secret <laughs> what he wants. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confidence of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you will do even more than I say. Oh, and by the way, just some good news for you, I'm coming. Prepare a guest room for me. I love it. I love it. And let's go back to the prayer in Philemon 1.6. So I think we've got the flavor of what Paul's trying to say. And now let's look at how Paul prays for this from the beginning. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. <clears throat> now, this is an odd translation. It's, I don't know why, honestly. Uh, so let's break it down here. I pray that the sharing of your faith, the word sharing is koinonia, which a lot of you probably recognize. That's a very famous New Testament word. It means community and fellowship. It's, it, it's very important in the book of Acts to describe the church in Acts 2, that very famous passage about they devoted themselves to all these things, right? They devoted themselves to worship, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and to the fellowship. They devoted themselves day by day, house to house, in each other's houses. It was this fellowship. They devoted themselves to the koinonia. It's the same exact word. It's a word that's even used in Greek and other places to describe the intimate relational, relational connection of marriage. So it's this picture of this redeemed community of God. It's the family of God, the church, the gathering. And so, 
sharing is a weird translation here because I think it misses the point because it, it, it says a more readable translation could be, I pray that your community of faith would become effective. Now, one other word that needs a little help, knowledge. That word in this, in this context means like a recognizing of. So when you first read it, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. It's like, almost like, what are you talking about? Oh, is he just praying for evangelism, like he'd be effective at sharing his faith? I pray that your... Okay, think about, well, think about that first translation. Now think about what, he, what Paul goes on to actually say in the book. And now think about this translation. I pray that your community of faith would become effective in recognizing every good thing that is in us in Christ. Think about that. I pray, this is his prayer, before he even tells him what to do, nicely, gently, suggests. I pray that your community of faith would become effective in recognizing every good thing, all the good things that are ours, that are part of our community in Christ, this new way of living. And now, then he goes on to tell him one of the most radical ideas you could tell a slave owner in the first century, which is, don't follow the Roman law, receive him back as a brother in Christ. So, the prayer makes sense now. The, whole, the prayer is a setup. The prayer is, I am praying that your community experiences this, this, this radical new ethic of what it means to be in Christ together, that you would recognize that God's doing something new and you'd embrace it as a community. And then he goes on, and Paul sets up this super dramatic moment to make this happen. In Colossians 4, 7 to 9, as we're getting towards the end, here's a very clear connection, which I didn't have time today to go into all the background to show that the letter to Philemon is a letter at either the leader of the Colossian church. There's multiple connections. Here's a super clear one. Is that jumping up there? Colossians 4. 7 and 9. So right at the end of the letter of Colossians, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. And I apologize if I didn't put the verse up there. Colossians 4, you can turn there real quick. 7 and 9. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in Christ. I have sent him to you, the church at Colossae, for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And here, watch this. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Colossians, he's one of you. But he's our faithful and beloved brother. And they, together, Tychicus and Onesimus, will tell you everything that has taken place here. A little bit of cultural context if you are a letter carrier, you are an ambassador for that leader. It is incredibly significant. It's not like you're just dropping off a letter. It's not just, you know, here's the mail, throw it at you, and I'm running. It's in that day and age. 
You were an ambassador for the one who sent it. So you, the person who would carry the letter, read the letter, would be one who was given authority, kind of has the badge on from who, the one who wrote it, to read it and then exposit it. It would be the first time a letter would be read. And so there would be questions. And it would be the ones who are carrying the letter are entrusted with the job of having that first initial house church Bible study, if you will. The teaching, the exposition of the word, the conversation, the what does Paul mean here? That's why Paul can go on to say, hey, they're going to tell you everything about what's taking place here. They, the runaway slave that's coming back into the church where the person he ran away from is the leader. And Paul sends him back with now an authoritative leadership role with Tychicus. He didn't just, he, Paul could have just sent him back personally with someone else to say, here he is. He sent him back holding the letter to the whole church. I mean, do you realize the implications of that? Like the runaway slave walks into the church for all of the contextual things that are going on in society and holding the letter of the Apostle Paul, the message is, yeah, uh, Paul may be a leader. So we're going to read this and then you can ask me questions. And before that had happened, Philemon got the personal letter about Paul's command requirement slash suggestion of how, Oni how Philemon should respond to Onesimus. And so now the church is gathered with all of the cultural expectations and all of the Paul's expectations of this new person in Christ, and everybody's watching. And Paul writes in Colossians 4.1 something radically new, which is, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly and it's like Paul set him up nasty style and said in front of your whole church Philemon what's that going to look like in Christ <laughs> oh my gosh I don't even know what to say after that <laughs> oh positive societal change comes through changed hearts who will change hearts. Transformed people who will be willing to help transform people. How does it all turn out? The only historical reference we have later is from two apostolic fathers, Jerome and uh, Ignatius. And they refer to an Onesimus who is the bishop of the church at Ephesus, succeeding Timothy, Paul, Timothy, Onesimus, slave, brother, bishop. Through relationship. So, the question for us is what spheres of influence is God giving you to invest in? Where through your changed heart, you can change hearts. Through your transformed and transforming lives, 
you can transform lives. Whether it's individual relationships or all, all, all the way up to big structures and systems that need change. What spheres of influence has God given you? All right. Uh, let, me, let me just give one example here of me as an imperfect but being transformed person. And I, and I didn't want to share this partly because it's, I know we're already too long, and, but it's weird because I had two people come up to me separately and say, I felt like God said to me today, essentially, I felt like God said to me today, you're supposed to go off script <laughs> and say, you know, kind of be spontaneous, which is hilarious because the question that I was coming to church with is, uh, should I share this today? I don't know. I know we're not going to have time. So the bottom line is, it's the Lord's fault that we're going over time right now. Here we go. <laughs> if there's anything else, you take away. No, but I, I, I do. Just real quick, because this question of, okay, so there's so many. It can get overwhelming to be a Christian that wants to see the world change, right? It can get overwhelming. And, and, and so part of it is we have to recognize where is God calling us to invest in our spheres of influence. And, and so I want to just share a, a, a snapshot for me from this week, really from Tuesday. That's all it is. It's just Tuesday. <laughs> uh, about how I see this process at work, and it's just to kind of flesh it out a little bit, to give some concrete pictures of, in our world, how relationships and relational connections can, can, can be that place where we model changed hearts, that changes hearts, that, that could potentially you know, move all the way on, on up to, to systems and structures. And so I want to show, uh, throw up a picture real quick here um, of some of my uh, good friends here. This is the Menifee Interfaith and Community Service Council. And uh, so this is one of those where, and I, again, I'm just saying we all have to find our spheres of influence. Where has God called you to invest relationally to live out your changed heart so that it changes hearts. Okay? So, I'm not, this is not yours. This is mine. I mean, if you want it to be yours, you know, join me. Welcome. That's great. Uh, but God, I trust God is going to give you spheres of influence. Okay? So, uh, Tuesday, this, this was just last Tuesday. So, this is a little snapshot from our Zoom meeting. And so, uh, somehow, by default, because <laughs> no one else wanted to, I got made uh, chair of that group for this year. So, uh, no, it was kind of a fun story. Councilwoman Lisa Sobeck, uh, wonderful, wonderful woman of faith here in the city, uh, last time we gathered, nominated me to do that, and, and it's happening now. Um, so this is a, but it's a, it's a gathering of, of leaders in various ways. So you can see there's Mayor Bill Zimmerman, Councilwoman Lisa Sobeck, various churches are here, my uh, Pastor Coates from the View Church, we got Gary Ann Brown above him from the Domestic Violence Shelter, great, great friends of ours, um, and, and just a great group of people. And I want to show that picture because that, that to me is one area where when we see crazy stuff happening in the world, it's like where, where are those places of influence that we can just live out a changed heart or a transforming life that can be positive? So, for example, it was this group, and the reason why I want to bring that up, it was this group last year. Uh, when there was so much, 
racial tension and division going on in, in, the, in our country and everything in the political atmosphere so flamed up. It was this group who quickly, in the midst of that, in the, in, in the midst of you know, cities burning and, and, and riots and, and just really and, and rhetoric flying all over the place, is just so, oh. And I know on my heart, Ephesians chapter 3 is a, is a real, that's one that God has put in me where Christ was on the cross breaking down barriers of hostility to create one new humanity. And he's not talking, at that point, it's not talking about us and God. It's talking about us. It's talking about out there, boundaries. And so our world right now loves to put up boundaries. Say, oh, you're different than them, boundary, and, and, you, and, and it's going to stay that way. I mean, the Bible recognizes differences. It, it does. But it also says, and Christ tore down those boundaries, the walls of hostility to create one new humanity in Christ. So that's big on my heart. So when all, when all that stuff was happening... It was like, is there something that in Menifee we can do? And it was amazing because within like three days, there was organized a, a love and unity prayer vigil and march. And, and, and it was a beautiful thing. And, and that's actually where we met Cynthia. Yeah, she and Ryan were, were singing uh, together, and, and uh, that was a beautiful time. Uh, but it was an amazing time to get together in the midst of what the rhetoric of the country was saying. You know, these, all these groups are divided. Or racial groups have to, you know, are all divided. There's so much hate. It's like, in the name of Jesus, that's a lie. No, no, no. There's so much love. I, I know in my heart, it's just absolute love. And I want to see barriers broken down and walls broken down. So it shouldn't be that hard. Let's just call up our friends and see what we can put together. And that's what I want to emphasize. In the moment that was the country was strained, it was lean on the relational networks that you already have of changed hearts that are changing hearts, that are transforming lives, and, and lean on those relation, relational connections that were already there. And so in a way, it was really easy. So I talked with Councilwoman Lisa Sobek on the phone. She rounded up her crew. It was like, we rounded up our crew. Next thing we know, within like three days, we're on the steps of City Hall, and, and we've got a beautiful, you know, unified, racially, you know, all together in the name of Jesus coming together to worship. And we had the mayor profess his, his uh, personal relationship in Jesus and pray. Oh, I forgot uh, the chief of police is on there, too. We had the chief of police come. And, of course, you know, that's another, oh, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying. Chief of police, I'm tired, dude, I'm tired. This is what happens when I talk spontaneously. Uh, <clears throat> Chief of police came, expressed his faith in Jesus, and prayed for, the, for unity, expressed his heart for policing with, with, with justice and with compassion. It's beautiful. Uh, pastors from the View Church spoke, and, and just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And, you know, it, it was publicized on the Menifee 24-7 and got a ton of views and comments and, and very, very positive. And, you know, so for me, in a time where, you know, it's kind of like the country's burning along lines of division, in a sense, because of the relational fabric that has been, that has been built in time, over time, in Menifee, in a sense, it was easy to do something different. In a sense, it wasn't even that hard. There was already the relationships there. And so we were able to press forward and model something radically different than many cities faced. And it was just through relationships, relational connection that, you know, kind of went all the way up to the highest levels of, you know, 
system and structure in, in our city. But it, in a very simple way, just comes down to relationships. That we invest in the relationships that perhaps, to use Paul's language, perhaps God has given you the opportunity. And so that's, that's kind of up on the structural level, the level. And I want to give one more example, just down on the relational level. I mean, it's all relationship, but some things may never get up to systemic and structural levels, and they will just hit and transform relationships. And I want to just speak to Tuesday night. So that was Tuesday morning at 8 a.m., Tuesday night. So my son, who's 14, loves basketball. And so to connect with my son, we, I go out there once in a while, and I play basketball. And it's, I, I love it. But I'm also not unaware of the reality of what the society says versus what God says. Where in Colossians 3.17, as Jesus says, or Paul says, in everything, in everything, do it in the name of Jesus. So I go everywhere trying to be in the name of Jesus. So when I walk onto the court and I see, oh, wow, this, this crowd is 70% young African-American men. What does the culture say about that? Oh, well, it says I'm a 40-year-old white male. I am the enemy and the problem, according to the narrative of the culture. And I say, in the name of Jesus, that's a lie. And I'm just going to go, and I'm going to share love. And I'm going to follow my son's example, <laughs> because he's still at that, that age of innocence in a great way, where it's just, these are just my friends. These are my friends. And I've seen it. It's hilarious. Like several times where I haven't played, where I've just dropped him off. And he walks up onto the court. And immediately, like, he walks up. And so, he's, you know, one of, one of the young guys, and he'd be like, what's up? And he guys does this. And they're embracing and then smiling. And I'm like, dude. And literally, like several different times. Like, you, do you know everybody? But it's a beautiful thing. And so we get on the court, you know. And, and it's funny. You know, we start playing. Like, and what? The relationships are there. When love is there, relationships get built. And, like, you know, by the end of last Tuesday night, Daniel had made a new friend, Drew, that, you know, he's like 6'5", and he can dunk, and we won four games in a row, so he's definitely Daniel's best friend. And my little 14-year-old, my little 14-year-old is going up, and he's after the game, hey, Drew, Drew, hey, that was really fun. Can we play again together? Can I get your number? And they exchange numbers, and so we're going to play a game with Drew. It's a new friend. All this stuff that society, you know, says we can't do. And, like, I'm out there, and, like, <laughs> so they're, I'm getting called OG. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, so we play. And this happened like several times on different courts. So they're not, it's, not one guy's, it's not one guy's nickname. They're like, they're talking, you know, the other opposing team will talk and they'll be like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm guarding OG. I'm like, I know I'm not an original gangster. So I, I think I'm just old guy. I really think I'm old guy. You know, which is fine, because for most of them, I could be their dad. Like, we're getting really close, you know. And I like it, you know. There's some of them are like, oh, it's so sore. I'm like, how old are you? They're 19. I'm like, I'm, shut up. I'm 42, and I just, you know, I would say dunked on you, but that's never happened. I just laid up on you. I did, a, I did an ugly layup on you. But the point is, and I'm not saying that fixes everything, but I'm saying, like, from the world standard, those things shouldn't happen. I'm like, that's such a bull crap. You know, that's like... Just come with Jesus, full of love, and guess what? Good things happen. <laughs> like, it's really not that complicated. And so we're, but that's the relational fabric that's going to make a difference because there's strong messages that are coming our way. And I, you know, I already like, think the messages from the world are just junk anyway, so I don't listen to them. But 
most people do, and so I'm going to assume that those young men do. And I'm assuming those young men, like when I walk onto the court, there's probably things they're thinking. So what am I doing? I am there to represent Jesus with just love, period. Just love. Yeah. And it's amazing what love will do. <laughs> now, they're, now they're friends. Like my son, I follow his lead, literally. It's like, wow. Like if everyone could just be like you, so many of the problems that supposedly exist in our world would be gone. Just love people. It's really not that complicated. So that's the, that's I want to give that example as just on the just the day-to-day relational level. And sometimes that's all that God wants. That's your sphere of influence. And sometimes it might get up to whatever might be a systemic or structural level. And not one is not better than the other. It's simply about where has God called you to be a person of influence with a changed heart, that you live out your changed heart in order to change hearts. So let's let's pray. Dance a new dance like day.